Hello again, Scott here from Social Energy Presents, and thank you so much for joining us. And this episode is particularly exciting if you know anything about the world of rock and roll and the guitars that bring it to life. Our guest today is Jim Service, one of the industry's top guitar technicians and a back client specialist and personal assistant for some of the most recognized bands in the business. Jim's list of credits include working both in-studio and touring internationally with a long list of rock royalty, including Aerosmith, Guns N' Roses, Lenny Kravitz, Johnny Lang, Foreigner, Van Halen, and Kiss, among many, many others. Jobs in this industry really don't come much sweeter than this, resulting in several platinum records for his work on various client albums. Jim has also worked on three Super Bowl halftime shows, as well as the Grammys and the Academy Awards. And today, Jim joins us from his home in beautiful Florida to talk about his exciting career and bring us up to speed on what he's working on next. So sit back, relax, and get ready as Social Energy now presents you with your Backstage Pass. Great. Fantastic. Let's bring up Jim and get him in into our little out of the waiting room and into our show. All right. Here he comes. Fantastic. Okay. So, man, we got to start. Last time I saw you was in Vegas when you were with Kiss. Uh, refresh me. I'm, I'm, uh, I vaguely remember, but, uh, that was, yeah, that was probably six years ago. I'm thinking okay. when they doing a residency there for a while and you were, you were running. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Residency at the, the old hard rock uh, hotel. That's right. Yeah. And we, we the, the night before you were kind enough to bring me backstage and show us, there was a bunch of us there, two or three friends of ours. I think Larry McLisha might've been there too. Oh, okay. Yeah. And we were looking, looking around at all the gear and stuff and going through some, some of the, you know, the blow up guitar and all. <laughs> that was fun. It was really fun. And the show, of course, Kiss always has such a great stage show. I mean, they're all about the spectacle. Yeah, yeah. Those guys, uh, yeah, they kind of wrote the book on it. Yeah, no kidding. Um, I remember the- I completely forgot about that for some reason. And now I'm like, oh, yeah, we, we did do the show in Dell one. Oh, yeah. Well, you're so busy all the time. What, before COVID hit, what was the last thing you were working on? Well, uh, I'm working for Guns N' Roses now. Uh, right. But, you know, tentatively when they get back to work, uh, I'm, I'm part of their, their team. And that's what I've been doing the last little while. I, I kind of had Lenny Kravitz and Guns N' Roses together, and I was juggling and uh and then i had to kind of just jump over it was too much to keep keep juggling so i ended up uh going with uh gnr full-time mm. well i remember working with gnr in uh sweden and i've never seen that many les pauls in one spot in my life. <laughs> there was more les pauls in that guitar coffin than there wasn't long of a coin yeah he's got a few i'm actually doing uh richard fortis the other guitar player in guns Although I have worked for Slash, um, and I spent a couple years with them, that's not my job on GNR. I got Fortis, the other guy. Well, is Slash back in GNR now? Oh yeah, yeah. It's oh. the it's the front line. It's it's Slash, Duff, Axel, uh, Dizzy, original keyboard player. Oh right, I did read about that. And yeah, there's so there's a different drummer, but um, yeah, it's it's a very intact band. Wow, and Axel's behaving himself. <laughs> yeah, you know, I heard a story. I heard a story that uh, you know a lot of that was in the press so much that uh, that's kind of the first thing that people tend to ask you. But uh, um, somebody told me that uh, when he subbed in for ACDC, they're very, very businesslike, and uh, you know it wasn't his outfit. He w- he was just uh, pleased to be there, and uh, 
and it was a, you know, a bunch of fun for him. So he, you know, he somebody else was making the, the rules. Uh, I guess he got on a schedule with those guys and really enjoyed it. <laughs> I know. I remember hearing about that. Everybody was shocked that he showed up on time. In fact, it was ahead of time. Yeah, no, he's he's like the first guy up there uh, uh, when we do uh, GNR shows. He's got a, a quick change that's really decked out, and he'll. He'll go up there like 20 minutes early and get, do some cardio. He's got some cardio machines in there and and just kind of, you know, do a, some yelling and screaming. And uh, now he's like the first guy. <laughs> I remember I remember back, uh, maybe maybe it's still happening, when we worked with Guns N' Roses, and they, of course, they, it was an outdoor show at, uh, have you done Sweden Rocks? Yes. Yeah. I know that whole back, that whole backstage area. And the guys from Guns N' Roses had a, a bubble hockey game that they that traveled with them. Oh, probably. Yeah. And, and it had its own road case, like this gigantic, <laughs> this gigantic road case. And we said, you got bubble hockey? And said, oh, yeah, it's in our contract. <laughs> we don't go anywhere without our bubble hockey. Yeah. 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 <laughs> They roll pretty large. It's a lot. It's mostly stadiums with those guys in a world where there's hardly any stadium bands left. Uh, those guys yeah. still are able to do stadiums. Yeah. Thing. So, um, so, okay. So you were working with Guns N' Roses, and so another question. So, how are you surviving this whole being off work thing? What What are you doing with yourself? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, it's been entertaining, and uh, well, to say the least. I've been, uh, you know, trying to, it's weird. Psychologically, it's weird. I've, you know, I kind of joined the circus when I was a teenager and it's been all this movement since, you know, road trip, you know, never at home and uh, trip after trip after trip after trip. It's been my whole life until now, you know, much later. And uh, so <laughs> mentally, it's it was a little weird uh, not always being on the move. Um, yeah. And yeah, no kidding. Because, I mean, I'm looking at the people that you've worked with. It seems like you must, like, finish a tour and then you're called to the next tour to work with somebody else. It must be, like, almost instantaneous. Well, not always, but that's what you're kind of striving for with, the, you know, a little bit of uh, sanity time in between. But um, And sometimes, you know, if you get a good call and it doesn't quite fit your schedule... You're probably going to do it anyway. <laughs> yeah. To uh, you know to do it. So sometimes the timing's not optimum. You know, perfect timing or whatever. And I remember um, having discussions with my you know wife at the time, and uh, you know, should I do this? And you know, we make the decision together, and uh, and uh, she was real supportive. So I always kind of did it. You know. Were like, yeah. You know, go get it. Well, it's, it, it becomes, uh, you know, uh, well, here's the story. It's like, oh, man, I'm really, really busy. Oh, my God, I can't do that. It's Paul McCartney. Okay, I'll be right there. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'll be on the next plane. Yeah, well, he's, you know, it's funny because he, you know, with us, it's uh, he's, he's in a, the highest echelon. But, you know, with me, it's always like feast or famine. Like, you're either stacked to the gills or like, oh, geez, there's a hole in my calendar. What am I going to do? Yeah. Yeah, uh, I actually saw something online, uh, uh, Ringo talking about it. I think it was on Howard Stern saying that uh, McCartney was the workaholic in the Beatles. It wasn't John or any of the other guys. Yeah. It was Paul who was very eager and super motivated and had a lot of ideas in his head that needed to, to make it out of there. And uh, Yep. Yeah. 
those guys, those guys, uh, yeah, they, it's like I think Ringo's line was, you know, John and I'd be sitting around the pool, you know, having a bevy, and all of a sudden Paul would go, well, lads, we got to get back to work. Yeah, there's always one guy, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, it goes to show, I mean, how much product he's put out, for better or for worse, in, in all fairness. But he's, he never stops working, the guy. I mean, he just doesn't. He loves what he does. Uh, it's almost like, I remember um, Randy Bachman had said, um, there was in an interview once, and it was, it was quite brilliant and, and revealing. Because uh, somebody said to him, what would you be doing with yourself if you weren't a successful singer-songwriter? He says, I'd be an unsuccessful singer-songwriter. <laughs> You know, you do what you love. You're not in it for the money. If you're in it for the money, you're in it for the wrong reasons. You do it because it's in your heart. That's right. And here's Paul McCartney who's living in a castle somewhere, eager to get into uh, Apple Studios and, you know, eat lunch and off the counter and, and get some of his songs recorded. You know, he, he had all the luxury and still would, would rather be at the studio, you know. Yeah, exactly. Well, apparently during the Let It Be sessions, he used to ride the bus to Abbey Road. The city bus. That's what, remember he had the beard of the, and he, he liked the fact he'd dress in the top coat and have a beard and he'd take the bus to Abbey Road and nobody knew who he was. <laughs> I know. He's always, his kids went to regular school. They went to public school. You know, he, he didn't want them in private schools. He, he's lived such a normal life. It's incredible. Well, that's you know, considering who he is. Yeah. Cause you know, I'm sure he gave his kids a grounded uh, reality like his parents gave him, you know, it's funny how you see that passed down. And Paul Stanley is kind of that guy, too. He's, you know, his parents taught him work ethic and, you know, a humble beginning and don't waste money and all the lessons. And they sunk in and, and you see him teaching his kids that. And, and he's not a, you know, he doesn't run around town just, you know, throwing money around like nothing. He's uh, I think his quote was, uh, he goes, anybody can make money. It's keeping money that it's, it's not true. Isn't that true, eh? It's so true. I mean, I, that's, I, Brent Knudsen has said the same thing to me. It's not how much money you make, it's how much you keep. Yeah. 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 Very true. Um, I was going to say, uh, yeah, so, uh, well, I, you were talking about Paul Stanley, and I was shocked. He, he's one of those voices that you never realize how good a singer he is. And then I saw him do a, a Broadway show back about, oh, it had to be 15 years ago. And he was on TV doing this Broadway thing. And I was going, holy crap, that guy can sing. I had no idea. You know, you're so used to kiss, you know, like the, the circus, you know. And yeah. he's, he's really an incredible singer. Yeah, he's, he's very talented uh, all around, you know. He's an, and he's a good example of, uh, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's not Van Halen on guitar, but he's a, a singing front man who's, who was doing it way before there was in-ear monitors and, uh, you know, having to yell over pyro and uh, loud guitar and loud bass. And and uh, he's old school. That guy's got endurance. I mean, at his age, um, and I believe that he's had every single, like both hips, both shoulders, I think his knees are done, maybe all of those joints from working as much as he has over the years. And he runs out there and still... You know, kicks his. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, there was there was spins around. Yeah, when I saw the show, they were it was like the, when I saw them in 1977. It was the same, you know. Yeah, no, he's he's in excellent condition. He's he's in better shape than I am, and he's you know older. <laughs> <laughs> I um, what's I going to say about yeah I, I, yeah what was it, what, his big line? You seen the rest? Now see the best or whatever. What his, he said that line every time the show starts. It's like they're they're. Their cattle call. 
But I want to take you back a bit. So you were born and raised where? Was it Nanaimo? No, I went to Canada as a kid. My father is uh, was a Canadian, and uh, him and my mother split up when I was a baby. Mm-hmm. And uh, I stayed with my mom. And then when I was 10 years old, um, I went to live with my dad. And your dad? And uh, he lived in, in Kamloops. He was... Uh, he was a musician and a and now a retired doctor, and uh, and when I was ten, I went up there, and that was my introduction to Canada. So your dad was a he was a doctor who also played in a band. No, he's a, a, a classical uh, musician. He's a violinist. Oh wow! Symphony guy, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So you definitely had music in your background, and so you must have started playing guitar or something at a young age. Is that correct? No, no. It's funny. Uh, he was a you know. Forgive me, father, but uh, he was a stuffy classical musician who was not going to have that in his house. Wow. That kind of nonsense and noise um, <laughs> emanating from his house. Um, and, uh, you know, he was practicing, you know, the schedule of a, of a uh, serious musician. And his, his uh, wife, my stepmother, was a classical pianist. So they were at it all day, all the time. <clears throat> And, oh, yeah. Wow. They, just, they just thought, uh, you know, what I was interested in was noise. So I, I wasn't afforded, uh, you know, I was told I could pick a, a band instrument for school band. And uh, and uh, I had a record. Uh, you ever hear of a guy called Mo Kaufman? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Yeah, the Bach to rock guy. Yeah. There was a record in uh, that somebody had in the house of that guy. And I thought it was pretty cool. So I. So I took uh, I took flute because it was super small and light. My stepbrother had French horn, which was super heavy. <laughs> right. So I took the I took flute, and uh, I was the only boy in the all girl flute section. So that was a plus. <laughs> hey, uh, Scott on our panel has a question. What's hey, that? Jim. So yeah. if your if your folks or your your dad and stepmom were classically trained and all that, did they not consider the other realms of music? music or worthy or like at, at, at what point did they sort of say, wow, Jim's actually finally cued into something that's really kind of worthwhile. Uh, never. <laughs> but, uh, I didn't live with him for a real long time. Uh, and I was out as a young teenager and that's when I made my way to, to uh, Nanaimo getting back on the track of our story a little bit. Um, okay. Was uh, originally when I was ten, I came to Kamloops, uh, where my father uh, worked at the hospital there, and uh, and then uh, shortly thereafter, I was uh, in uh, in Nanaimo. I have an older sister who uh, who married a guy in the Noose Bay, and they had a, a a small farm there in the Noose Bay, and uh, you know I was a teenager uh, having uh, having a tough time, and my my older sister said, "Hey, come live with us." So I did, and uh, and uh, and that's uh, when I entered the business when I when I got to Vancouver Island and Nanaimo. So who did you work with first? Well, it's were you playing were you playing in a band or were you? No, at this point I love music. I don't play anything. I, I'm a I'm an air drummer. I'm an air you know I I'm a history buff with music, but I don't play anything. And I'm about 
you know, by the time I get to Nanaimo, I'm around uh, 15, almost 16 years old. And, uh, and I meet a, a, a girl who I uh, go crazy head over heels with and uh, when I get to Nanaimo. And, and her older sister was dating a guy who you know. Uh, <laughs> and that guy was Rob Becker. Okay. And uh, Rob had a band, a professional band that had a truck and lights and sound equipment and, you know, a crew and, uh, and they played, you know, a lot. Do you remember the name of that band? Windjammer. Oh, okay. Okay. I remember that. I remember that name. I never saw them, but I remember the name. Yeah. Windjammer. And, uh, and so, uh, he had this band and, uh, and they were just in the, point of breaking up Windjammer and starting a, 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 a pop new wave uh, kind of band because that's what was all the rage in uh, late 79 or, or 80 when I, uh, when I met all these crazy folks and, uh, and was introduced to my new business in life. Um, but, uh, you know, it's around 1980 and they learn a bunch of Joe Jackson songs and they change the name to The Urge and uh, it's all guys that you know, uh, you know, Glenn Dooley and Gordy Allen uh, right. and, and we hit the road and, and uh, I was a, a underage kid with a fake ID and, uh, and kind <laughs> of runaway almost and nowhere to really turn and I just kind of uh, you know became my career but it also became my bros and my family I didn't really have anything else you know? yeah it's like a, it's like a carny lifestyle it's a carny lifestyle and, yeah. uh, and you're out there with a bunch of brothers and uh you're all in the same boat. Yeah, if you're not sleep, if you're not sleeping in a hotel, you're sleeping in the back of a truck or a van. Yeah, wherever you had to go, uh, and yeah. it seemed all fine, you know. Yeah. When nobody was really worried about it, we were all uh, we were all just living and having a good time. Um, oh yeah, I spent I spent quite a quite a bit of time going back and forth to towns across the prairie, sleeping on Sir and Vega cabinets. Remember those? <laughs> That, that, that was that was my bed in the back of the van. Oh man! I hope you had a piece of foam or something. <laughs> you know, actually, we didn't for a while, and then uh, we had it. See, we had a trailer, but the, the trailer only held so much. And then it wasn't until we finally got a crew and a and a, and a real truck that we actually converted our van to something that we could actually sleep in. But boy, it was uncomfortable for a while. Thank God it was only eighteen. So. Right. <clears throat> You're on top of the world playing music and getting better at your craft. Absolutely. Yeah. We were all bulletproof, you know, and, but, you know, luckily for me, my band Shama was probably the most dedicated band. There was absolutely drugs, no way, booze, no way, working out, looking. I remember one time we were playing, we'd finally worked our way because we didn't want to play in Vancouver until we came in on Gilded Wings type of thing, because we wanted Bruce Allen as our manager. That was our goal. So we stayed around the prairies for, you know, quite a while, a couple of years, two and a half years, until we'd become so big that when we played Vancouver, we played the body shop. Remember that place? Yeah. Yeah. So for you when you got there, that's what you were trying to do. Yeah. And then, of course, Bruce Allen was front row center the very first night. And he called us into his office. So it worked. But I remember going to play the body shop one night and we were all we all just dressed in white. It was white. Everything. Our amps were white. The lights on stage were white. There was white carpeting. Everything was white. And the reason we did it was for the lighting. It made yeah. it look really good. For one thing, you knew when the band entered the room, for one thing. So you got that professional air. But also when, when you put blue lights on, that whole stage was blue. 
and it yeah. looked like you had this incredible light show when yeah. really we didn't uh, it, comparatively. But I remember <laughs> I was putting on my pants and Brian Armstrong, our drummer, walked up. He goes, oh, Mick, Mick you got a crease in your jeans. You want to iron those, please? <laughs> <laughs> like we were that stringent. It was like we I remember Jeff Neal, who's now in street. I remember Jeff Neal coming up he's, after the first set. He said, hey, Mick, you uh, you kicked your leg during that song in the first set. I said, yeah, he said, save your move. Wait, wait, wait till later on in the night. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to give away all your moves right away. <laughs> we, we were so we were so focused on where we were going. It was like we would discuss the show every night. When we finished, we'd go back to the hotel and discuss the show. There was no partying. That band did not party. Better than everybody. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, that's it was a good band at the time for sure. Yeah. I actually remember uh getting back to the uh the Urge band. Uh I remember that when I first met you, the very first time. Um it was in Nanaimo, and there was that gig called Sebastian's, which was the converted church. Yeah, and the stage and the stage looked like an altar. The stage was where the altar used to be. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and we were setting up in there, and you were in the A room a across uh, town, about three or four blocks. Oh. Uh, and you walk down there just to stick your head in the door and maybe see somebody that you knew or something. But uh, every, yeah, I remember it was about 1980. Yeah, well, so that must have been when they opened up that, when maybe Herb opened up that club across the street. It was like in a strip mall or something. Because I think Herb Kessler was the guy who brought Shama. We played Sebastian's. That was our first gig in Nanaimo. Okay. And then the next time, I think he had left and he started his own club. So I think I just went over to see what was going on at Sebastian's and you guys were there. Right, yeah. And you were at Shuffles. No, I don't think it would have been Shuffles then. I think it was no, another no, place. There was another place. place that they had for a bit. Yeah, I know the other one too. Yeah. Yeah. It was a weird name. I can't remember what it was called. Downstairs. No, that was Rascals. Okay. It was Rascals Shuffles and there was this other place. They always had to have an apostrophe S. Every club ended with an apostrophe S. Right. <laughs> right. Every band and every club. Yeah, no kidding. But um so okay, so now what 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 launches you to what you would say is the big time where, where you, I know it's, it's all incremental steps. You work with one band, this leads to another, but yeah, but there was definitely some breakthrough, you know, pivotal moments that happened and gave me momentum and, and uh, in my career. But uh, yes, yeah, so I kind of messed around with, with little bands around uh, Vancouver scene for, Geez, four or five years, you know, um, plugging around in the circuit. You know, we both know it well. And um, and then... What, what, what was your job then? Were you running sound? I was, uh, I'd set up, I'd drive the truck, set everything up, and operate lights. Okay, okay. I was a light guy. Okay. But I also would always set up all the back line, too, for my extra, you know, 100 bucks a week. The man would kick right. in. And so I just set up set up everything, right? Well, just something to interject here, because this is going to be, a, this show is going out around the world. But back in those days, you could make a living playing the clubs. Absolutely. Like, like in the early 80s, I remember by that time, I was out of Shaman into Trauma. And we, there were so many, I never had to go on the road. People said, oh, it must have been hard in your family. I said, 
my family, are you kidding? The kids would go to bed and dad would be home. I'd leave after they went to bed and go play at 10 o'clock. The kids would wake up in the morning, dad's home. It was like, they never, they thought like I never worked. And, right. and luckily there was so much work that when they would ask us to go to Vancouver Island or go to, let's say the Okanagan, I would use that when the kids were on school holidays. So it became a paid vacation. Right. You know, and I'd, I'd bring a babysitter. The babysitters would usually come for free because whatever we were doing was so much fun. Right. You know, but, and okay, so Charles, maybe you could look this up for me. Now, when these, back then, like I remember back in the early 80s, I was taking a, a wage of $500 a week. Do you remember how much you were making as a crew guy? In like the a, early 80s when I started? Yeah. When I started, I was making zero. <laughs> right, of course. Uh, and, uh, you know, they'd throw me uh, uh, a little bit of, you know, you know, buy me a burger or whatever when we were, uh, you know. So it was just kind of scraping along with no money, but really not caring, could care less if I had no money. And uh, then shortly thereafter, two months into my career, I went from zero to a hundred bucks a week. Right. And then, so let's say we're looking around, now that's probably 1980, right? Uh, that would be 1980 when I entered the biz, yeah. Yeah, so let's say around 83, 84. Uh, by 83, 84, are you still in the clubs or are you off? Yes, yeah. So, so 83, 84, you were making probably substantially more, like 200 well, maybe? No, what I did was uh, I bought some lights. <laughs> ah, smart. And I became the lighting uh, subcontractor uh, and I owned all the, the lighting equipment. So... That often gets you into trouble because now you're making more than the band. Uh, not in every case, wow. and maybe not in, in trauma, but in, in my band, um, you know, later on when I had the light show, and especially after I had it all paid off and everything, um, you know, you're were, you were doing pretty good because you'd, you'd pull a salary, you know, by then around, you know, 300 bucks or whatever your yeah. salary was. And then your, your lighting rental had to be, you know, 400 bucks or whatever. So even back then, I was uh, I I found a way to kind of squeeze it for a little little more than, uh, than the rig. So, so with your lighting rig and your wages, let's say you're pulling in six seven hundred bucks a week. Yeah, easy. So what's that in today's dollars, Charles? Uh, Canadian. Uh, let me see if I can do. Well, that. actually, make make it American money. What would that be in American money? From Canadian to American in these days' wage, I think that might be interesting. Go in there. <laughs> I know. <laughs> 17 cents an hour. <laughs> okay. so, I, so what was the wage in, in the 80s? Well, 800 bucks. Okay, all right. But the you reason I'm... This is going to take half a second. That's okay. We'll, we'll keep talking. Just interject when you want. Right. So, because right. um, the reason I'm saying that is because I remember about down in the States when, you know, the L.A. bands, this is back when Van Halen were breaking. I remember th the big thing was bands in the States, which is kind of the way it is here now, would almost have to play to play in a club. They would, they would be, if you wanted to play in like the Troubadour, or you wanted to play in whatever club down yeah. in L.A., you had to go out and sell the tickets and all that stuff. And the money you made was 50% of the ticket sales you did, and that's the only way you could survive. Whereas in Canada... There was the guys in bands were owning houses. Look at what you got. You bought a lighting rig. You're making seven hundred dollars a week, um, eight hundred dollars a week. Uh, so there was a way. There was a lot of money to be made in the club business up here, and you really didn't even have to go on the road. 
Yeah, I mean, I did. You, you, you didn't have to because your band was better than everybody else's. I've <laughs> 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 for some great bands, but you guys were the top cream of the crop, so you could pick and choose more than other bands that weren't cream of the crop necessarily we would all have to you know you're gonna have to go do your 12 weeks out in you know alberta and saskatchewan if you want to do a swing through the lower mainland and you know and you do it because that's what the agency told you and you got to hand it to those you know sam feldman and bruce allen and their vision uh you know the way that whole western canada circuit was set up there was you know we were all making money we we're making yeah. Having homes and kids, and <clears throat> but they were making the lion's share of it because, of course, at the time I wasn't all that aware of it. But not only were we paying, uh, like, well, we paid ten percent because we negotiated it down. But most bands were paying fifteen percent commission. Right. But the nightclubs who had Feldman bands were also playing, paying a fifteen percent commission to be part of the to be part of the Feldman roster. So they were making a crap load of money, right. and of and of course Sam and, and Bruce had split partnership. Bruce Allen and Sam Feldman, and they were both like, so Bruce is managing Loverboy at this time and Brian Adams, uh, 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 what's, what's his name, um, Tom Cochran, Red Rider, all these bands are out there, and he's making his money as a manager, and Sam's running the agency, but they're splitting everything 50-50. It was the right. best divorce on earth. Yeah, there's tons of money in both. It was uh, the best divorce on earth. They, they split everything 50-50 and kept the lawyers out of it. Yeah. Yeah. Good on him. I that, that must be a deep Jacques Cousteau bank account. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Okay, so okay, so let's let's take you out of the uh, nightclubs now. So you've done you've done well. Yeah. So oh sorry, go ahead, Charles. So uh, just back to the question that you guys had, seven hundred dollars yeah. back in the '80s would be twenty-two hundred dollars a week now. So that's sort of what you're talking about. It's great money, and I was going to say to Jim. I love how entrepreneurial you became. And it's, you know, I'm wondering if that's led to an aspect of your success, like doing the lighting piece, because that's a very smart entrepreneurial move. And now you're making more than the band. And that actually, <laughs> actually, that actually plays to what Mark and France was saying about you have to be able to diversify what you're, yeah. what you're able to do. You have to, I can't remember the term you used, Mick, so, um, where you have, to, you have to look um, how you're going to build a business in a sense. Yeah, I don't even know if I thought about it much. It was like the guy before me had a bunch of gear and he was doing it and he left. So I said, yeah, I'll buy your stuff. And then I figured out somebody I could borrow some money off of. And and uh, it just kind of happened. And then it wasn't until it was happening that I really realized the fruits of the of what I had done. You know, I'm, I'm out in Alberta with a, you know, with this band and they're, everybody's mad at you because you know after they pay all the bills you know they don't have a lot of change left and uh yeah. i don't know so but once once that's uh, that kind of phase was done i kept the lights and i and i uh and i uh subbed them out with a friend of mine who was also a a, a lighting guy in the bars like i was and he kept that thing working for many years afterwards after i had already kind of flown the nest and was doing uh other kind of you know, uh, gigs where I, you know, wasn't needing uh, lights anymore. Right. So what, um, so, okay. So let's, let's take it from there. You have the lights going on. Uh, and now are, are you saying that you sold the lights to this next guy or did he rent them out on your behalf? I, uh, he, I kept, I owned them. I still own the lights in the little company that I had. And, uh, and this guy was 
kind of my manager and he would go out with my gear and uh and I'd send it out as a package and, and it, and it worked, uh, it's worked a lot. Well, we, we used to spend a tremendous amount of money between, between rider trucks and, uh, and, uh, what was it? Rocky mountain sound and right. guy Scott and guy Scott's with his lighting. We, our lighting costs. I mean, we were making, I think trauma was making about $4,250 a week. We paid 10% commission. So that's 42, you know, what, $425, whatever it is in commission. And then we'd be, we'd be spending between the truck and the lighting and stuff. I think it was like $2,200 a week in that hey, stuff wow. alone. Yeah. yeah. So there was a lot of money being made by everybody because of that music business and clubs yeah. were packed seven nights or six nights a week back then. I can't believe how, how packed it was. I mean, you know, like it just times have changed and, you know, there was no internet to keep people busy at home or yeah, everything is, is kind of different. Um, but yeah, it was a really fertile time and I'm so glad cause I don't know where I would have fit in. Hadn't this, you know, come into my accidentally into my life. This, oh yeah. You know, doing this business. But, um, um, I, you know, around 84, or 85, I, um, I got a job with trooper. Oh, okay. And that was my first band that I had worked with that had, had like a, a real record out. Uh, so that Mark LaFrance would have been playing drums with them. I started right after Mark left. Like okay. really early at that scene. Uh, I think Ronnie Barron was the next drummer after Mark. Right, correct. And that's when I came in. Okay. Okay, cool. So, uh, and and that, that was a, a big uh, shift for me going from what I had been doing for the last, you know, four or five years to what I was about to be doing. Uh, the real segue because, you know, we would play, you know, one-offs and special nights in, in the bar or whatever. It wasn't quite arenas or, or super big venues yet. So I was able to, you know, grow, uh, you know, with it. It didn't get away on me. Right. Um, Okay. Uh, thanks, Charles. I got your note. Uh, I was going to say, uh, uh, now, I, I want, before we get into all, we got a gallery of pictures that you sent us, but we'll, we'll get into that later because there's still, okay. there's still some ground to cross. So from Trooper, now Trooper in those days, they weren't qu quite in their heyday anymore. Their heyday was probably 1979 to 1981 in there. Right. It was, yeah, we were in the trenches working. <laughs> right. Um, so the, but the big shows are probably still out in the Maritimes. Yeah, there was big shows, uh, but we filled all the little cracks with little shows. Right, of course. And they, and they still do that. God bless yeah. them. I, they're still one of my favorite live bands. I love Ray and Smitty. Fantastic, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And um, so, uh, uh, okay, so from Trooper, where do you, what's the next step? What's the next step up the rung? Well, Trooper, I kind of sharpened some new skills because um, now uh, I'm, I'm doing lights and, and, and back line, but... The back line is more. It's it's for a real guitar player and who's been around and played a lot of arenas and um, and so Smitty kind of took me in under his wing and uh, and really I knew nothing and I could you know I could play you smoke on the water on uh, guitar maybe if I tried real hard biting on the my tongue while I was doing it but um, at that point um, you know. But Smitty kind of showed me how to handle, you know, he had a, some Les Pauls and a Strat 
He showed me how to handle them. He showed me how to handle his old Marshall Super League 100 and his cabinets and pedal board. And that was my first rig was his rig. And, um, and I would set him up, set the drums up, uh, and, uh, and operate lights and drive the truck. That was my job with Trooper. But I got better at guitar teching and drum teching. How do you become a guitar tech when you don't play the instrument yourself? It's weird. I kind of, um, it's, it's weird. I didn't play the instrument. I knew a few chords. You know, yeah. I, I, I knew, uh, you know, very, really didn't play it though. Um, and I know guys at, the, at a high level that don't play guitar. That, and I think that they're, they're handicapped um, if they don't you know, speak the language, so to speak. But, um, but I, have uh, a, I, have, I have an idea about that. Because one of the things about a, a, a crew guy who's a guitar tech usually is a, is a disgruntled guitar player who wishes he was in the limelight. And, and I think a guy like you, who's actually there to do a job for the guy, I think it would keep you more focused. I, I notice a lot of times, you, and you see this in almost every club, every concert, wherever there's, let's say if it's a, a big enough band in a club where they've got a guitar tech, the guitar tech goes up there and does all of his greatest licks for the crowd before the band goes on stage because that's their chance to get their yayos out. A guy like you wouldn't be doing that. Uh, you know, have I, have I Zeppelin riffed a, a crowd or two in my days? <laughs> 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 so you've learned to play by osmosis over the years obviously it's weird yeah i never was a guitar player who couldn't cut it and became a guitar tech i was a guitar tech or a, or a crew guy who was in, super enthusiastic about music and had some ability that didn't realize had some ability and then just slowly started playing stuff because it was around and you know now i can kind of fake it on a, on a few different instruments and uh just just from being around and well your dad i mean there's no doubt you have it in your blood yeah my dad's a, a top-notch yeah musician so yeah and there could be a little going on but it's i always tell people i'm the best musician you've ever heard that's never practiced a day in his life <laughs> <laughs> is your dad is your dad still with is your dad still with us by the way yeah yeah he's out in uh he's out in ontario and he's locked down he's in a he's in a home and um and he's been in there but uh he, at least he's got his uh instrument to keep him uh, busy and he's in his 80s and uh arthritis and nothing has kicked in so he's actually told me he's playing better than he ever has in his life wow and isn't that incredible yeah so i'm, I'm completely amazed uh that you know because you'd expect him to uh have diminished by by now somewhat at least speaking of guitar i see a gibson in the background what is that i see i just see the headstock oh you'd like this oh it's a j160 oh fantastic yeah. oh yeah the john lennon special I love yeah. it. Oops. I, I, oh yeah, that's that's a great guitar. You know what? I, I had one, and what I did was because it's got the P one ninety pickup in the neck position, right? The P ninety, yeah. And that's and that's the sound of I feel fine. That opening up, down, That's that guitar through a Vox amp. Oh, it is. That's why it's such an in, a, a unique sound. You plug that in, or actually, it doesn't even have to be a Vox. Any any amp, you plug that in and play that riff, that's the sound. But because the P90 that you could, that came with the J160 
J160E is the same P90 that came in your SG or whatever. It's Correct. exactly the same pickup. Um, there wasn't a, uh, an acoustic and an electric variation. It was just the P90 they stuck in. And um, I love the sound of this guitar. I always prefer a magnetic pickup over any kind of PCO thing. They sound a little... I put a piezo in mine and I used, and, uh, and what I would do is I turned the tone control. Uh, so my vol I turned my volume into a stacked thing. So I pull it up for the tone, right? Mm -hmm. The volume on it. And uh, the second one, the P the P with the second tone control on the J160 was the volume for the piezo. So I had an acoustic sound and that oh. P90 sound that I could use whenever I wanted. Blended. Yeah. Yeah, it was a good idea. I sold the guitar, sadly, but it was a good idea. <laughs> anyway, so let's, okay, so now uh, from, from Trooper, where do you go from there? Oh, boy. Um, from Trooper, I went to um, Tim Bachman's BTO. Oh, that's right. I remember that. That was and with Rick Fedek and Jim Robinson? It was pre those guys when I got there. Oh, oh really? Yeah, um... And, uh, and uh, we, yeah, we ran around. It was right after uh, BTO, the, the, the Intact real band, did the Van Halen tour, uh, 5150, with uh, Leslie West as a special guest and everything. It was right. And then they finished that tour, and then, uh, and then Tim went out with a fragmented uh, version of, of the band, and, uh, and that's, that's what I was uh, doing for. That's right, because... Because Tim was called back up from the uh, from the minor leagues to play with with Randy again, right? Yeah, he had played on the the original records, uh, you know, the, before before uh, they got Blair Thornton. So, yeah, he's an original, real yeah. original member. Um, I know. I was just talking yesterday about how Blair Thornton's the luckiest guy on earth. He got called in for their biggest album. He's been retired ever since. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was the luckiest move ever. He was playing a, in a club band in Vancouver. That was a lottery win for him. Oh no, kidding! Wow, unbelievable. So, uh, okay, so so you went to, to so so I, I was wondering because I remember Rand, now Randy knows you. Did you ever work for Randy as well? I never worked for Randy directly, but I met him during those those years when I when I met uh, started working for his brother, and uh, and I had met him, and then we just bumped into each other here, there, and everywhere. Uh, over the years, and I've always been a fan of his and a guitar enthusiast. And uh, and um, well, you may not remember this, but in nineteen, uh, probably in two thousand three, two no two thousand four, you were out with Aerosmith, and you guys were in Saskatoon, and your tour buses were parked in front of the uh, the Bensboro Hotel. And I was on Randy with Randy doing a jazz tour, playing all these little jazz clubs across Canada playing upright bass and uh, we we all had breakfast me me you Randy at some little restaurant place in in remember. you remember that yeah. yeah in Saskatoon remember that but you don't remember Vegas huh <laughs> come on it's Vegas There's a lot of stuff going on yeah but anyway so okay so for, so from Tim Bachman so and now you were never working in the band when Rick Fedek or Jim Robinson played, I yeah, guess. Yeah, Jim and Rick and Mike. Um, oh, right. Mike was there, too. Yeah. It's funny because, um, you know, the, the last 
last batch of guys he had decided to split and Tim didn't really know anybody. So I helped him uh, find uh, Mike Kelly for the, uh, for the Blair Thornton spot. Cause he's a uh, strong singer, good rhythm, guitar player, looks good, everything yeah. you want. So I brought Mike in and introduced him to Tim and then Mike in turn brought Jim and Rick Fedekin. Okay. Fair enough. It was a perfect choice because, uh, it was a really great little uh, solid band, and uh, we ran there. There was no casinos or any any of that stuff back then. So you you know you're playing like state fairs and you know right. Yeah. Uh, now Rick's gone on to be drummer for Paul Rogers. So I've seen him out doing that gig a couple of times. It's yeah. funny he does. He plays like uh, Bonham. Yeah, he plays like Bonham, but he's a little like uh, Simon Kirk. Uh, so I know oh. I, Paul likes him. Yeah. Uh, yeah 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 rick's doing good oh i love rick he's he's one of my favorite guys on earth and he's an incredibly dedicated drummer i love i love of course whenever we get together we have to do led zeppelin because i do a fairly passable robert plant so we always have a lot of fun doing that stuff right but um so anyway so now that that brings us so now the tim backman the tim backman version of bto and now now where do you go how did you get to the next one well, I'm, so I'm running around with him for a while, and then... For a while, how, what do you say, like a year, year and a half, two years? Um, yeah, a couple of years. Okay. And then uh, I get back to Vancouver, and I get the Headpins gig. Oh. Now, was that, huh? was Bernie in the band? Excuse me? Was Bernie in the band with the headpins, or was that? Yeah. Because yeah. there was there was a uh, there was a point a, a point uh, where they didn't have Bernie. They had uh, right. Mark Craney, right, from G- Gino Vanelli's band. Right. So, um, so I got the headpins gig, um, and uh, I was uh, doing those guys for a while until uh, Brian got diagnosed, and we were up in uh, I think we were in Edmonton or Calgary, Edmonton, and uh, you know that news and then we all just went home i know i was really sad yeah. uh, but i remember brian and i well brian and i and jeff neal we had a, a, a it was like an oversexed jam it was called sailor's beat named after brian's dog that lived on his boat now for all of our listeners and viewers or whatever brian mcleod from the headpins and chilliwack had this boat called the grand marnier that he parked down on uh, granville island and on that boat, now this is back before digital, so it wasn't a computer. He actually had a complete studio on his boat. And it was locked. Of tape, salt water. <laughs> I know. It was like unbelievable. And, and, and he got, the demos he did out of there were so strong. But anyway, so uh, he was asked to put a band together for Wednesday Night Jams with Steve. I love Steve. Wonderful guy. But yeah, he used to walk around in the tuxedo announcing everybody that came in the door. <laughs> Every, everybody was a star in his clubs if he knew your name you were a star Good yeah but anyway so he the um they got so brian enlisted me and jeff neal to do this thing called sailor's beat on wednesday night and it was it was this wonderful it was this wonderful thing and i was so happy i'm sorry i'm going off on a bit of a tangent here but it's a good story so there was remember night moves magazine it was like a, a monthly periodical it was almost like rolling stone magazine for vancouver the vancouver area yeah i kind of remember that and so yeah so club soda the club that we're playing bought out a huge one-page ad on the back of the magazine that's that's prime real estate on this magazine 
Every Wednesday night at Club Soda, Sailor's Beat featuring Picture, Brian McLeod, Chilliwack Headpins, boom, Picture, Jeff Neal, Streetheart, Shama, and boom, my picture, and Nick Felizowski. <laughs> not not even Mick. It was Nick. Nick Felizowski. So I walk in. Now, Steve, for all you people, like Steve looked like an axe murderer. Lovely, lovely guy. But he looked like if you saw him out on the street, you'd walk the other way because he's just a scary looking individual. But I walk into Club Soda early for this jam because I'm so excited to see this ad. And I look and I'm just heartbroken because they didn't even get my first name right. And so I walk in the back office and Steve's sitting at the desk and I walk in and he goes, Mick, come here. <laughs> so I walk in and he goes, Mick, I talked to Night Moves Magazine and they assured me, like, and he knows my last name and he's very proud of being able to say it. He says, and they assured me that they knew how to spell Mick Della Vicenza. I saw it. It came out. I was appalled. I phoned up Night Moves Magazine and I said, you're going to be hearing from my friend Mick. <laughs> that's it <laughs> like what am i gonna do you put a horse's head in their bed or something <laughs> anyway so the reason i tell you that so brian mcleod wanted to do a reenactment of that but by that time jeff neil jeff neil was busy with jimmy barnes in australia so i said well let's get brent knudsen so brian had got this gig out of remember the old um uh it was a fun palace in abbotsford remember that gig sure do yeah, and so we were asked to do a week out at the Fun Palace in Abbotsford. Brian was going to play drums, and I'm going to play bass. Brent's going to play guitar. And so I said, well, what are we calling ourselves? He says, the Foreskins. I said, what? <laughs> I said, well, for one thing, there's only three of us, and we're playing in the Bible Belt. He says, yeah, I want to look great on the marquee. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, we, so we're called the foreskins and the whole idea was the audience had to drink enough to see the fourth guy right and so oh we would God. we would be doing songs and brian was a fantastic drummer i mean he played drums and a lot of chilliwack stuff he was not only a great guitar player but man and so so we're playing we'd be playing a song and all of a sudden the drums would stop playing now the rule is if drums stop there might be a problem you don't want to draw attention to it so you keep looking at the audience you don't want to look back in, in shock so i'm looking at the audience hoping maybe brian's got to fix his bass pedal his right. bass drum pedal and i'm playing and playing i look no mcleod's over at the bar getting shooters for everybody in the band <laughs> in the middle of the song he just stops playing walks over to the bar grabs a tree of shooters and brings them back to us and he's holding them it was the most we, we broke all the house records in that place we had the house records until the day it, they, it folded it just it was I, there was probably the most amount of drinking any band has ever done and of course the house would pay for it they were just so proud to have Brian McLeod there hey, you, right. know? you can do anything that's why you got up off the drums yeah no kidding but, but yeah, that was a lot of fun uh, fantastic guitar player and I loved his his uh, inflection of guitar on all that kind of stuff you can hear him doing hi-hat moves on his guitar. You know, that whole... Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, that, that McLeod trademark thing that he does. It's the same as... Yeah, you know, yeah, you're right. You're it's right. It's the same move. He's thinking yeah. like a drummer, and he was, it was so syncopated and so in time and back. Nothing was in a hurry. And yeah, yeah it was great. Well, I love Steel McLeod and Prisoner, too. I mean, that band was, that's a band that should have gone somewhere. I love their original material. Dave Steele is one of the greatest singers of all time. Yeah. And uh, it sadly went nowhere. But anyway, so now, now we're with the Headpins. And uh, so from there, where do you go? How does, how does it graduate out of that school? 
Boy, this is going to take seven hours. This interview. I bet. I bet. Okay. So, okay. Well, let, let, let's cut to the chase. Where, 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 cause now we've sort of worked our way up into the upper echelon of Canadian rock. Uh, but there's going to be a time where now all of a sudden a higher echelon. Okay. Yeah, like the international. Where where do you cross over into the big international acts? Well, I I um I ran around with headpins and then you know did it you know like did a little quick minute with Paul Jans and some of these other people around Vancouver that were kind of making it all the time. Still renting my lights all the time, doing bar gigs if I got a call to do that. Um, I don't know if you know Jody Perfect, uh, Brian Adams. Of course, yeah, yeah. So him and I used to, he'd do sound and I'd do lights. And we had this bar band. And when he was off the road from doing arenas with Adams, him and I would be, you know, standing on a milk crate in the back of a bar doing sound and lights, right? So right. we were all just trying to keep working, you know, even even the guys like him who had, you know, supposedly made it. Um, but, yeah, um, yeah you know, uh, did those you know headpans and then i i uh, got the lover boy gig oh and uh and well, that would make sense yeah and i got it in the studio so it was my first step in the door a little mountain and uh they were doing a greatest hits and uh, there was five new songs that were going to be recorded which a few were going to get chosen to go on this greatest hits record and so I got to go in there and, and do a record with Bob Rock, with Loverboy, as one of my first times in a recording studio. You gotta love that. So it was like, damn. And I mean, Rock hadn't done all the great things that he had, you know, done later, but it was, it was kind of neat seeing a, you know, a guy who was coming up from, you know, being an engineer and a good player and a, about to turn the corner into international fame. Um, but I got the Loverboy gig and I kind of monkeyed around with those guys for a while. And then I got the Gino Vanelli gig um, and, and did him a little bit. Oh, man. That, but what, that's the best live sound I've ever heard in my life. Was Ross, his brother, still running sound? Uh, no, Ross had, had gone. But uh, getting back, it, Jody from Brian Adams okay. was the, was the uh, front of house engineer. Oh, so him and I did that together. And, uh, you know, if you've ever heard Adams, you know how great he sounds. Yes. So, um, yeah, so we were, got the got the Gino Vanelli gig and I got to know Jody pretty good. And uh, and then from that, Jody recruited me for Brian Adams. So now I'm starting to work with Canadian bands, but they're on the international level. Right. Um, you know, I've gotten, uh, you know, I'm not more than just regional or Canada only bands. I'm starting to like, and now I can taste it. Like, I'm like, shit, you know, if a guy really applied himself, you know, right. you know, at some, at certain points, you're not, uh, you know, uh, really qualified to, to apply for certain gigs, but now I'm not afraid to try for anything. Right. Um, you know, all you can do is say no. And I'm a little more fearless than I was because I've, done a couple of things and um and uh anyway i got this uh it's a funny story i got this gig with this band called the screaming jets and they were from uh australia and it was with your your buddy mike filoni called me oh really eh? okay and, and said hey you want this job and uh 
and I wasn't working. I was home and I, you know, phone rings to take the job. So I said, yeah, he goes, yeah, this is band. They're kind of like ACDC. They're young. They're from Australia. They're coming over here and they're going to, you know, try and break into America and they're going to do some shows around LA and then do a little run around uh, the U S I said, sign me up. So I fly down to, to LA to do that gig and, you know, I meet everybody and we do like one rehearsal and uh, I get back to the hotel and uh, I get back to the hotel and, uh, you know, check in with the wife. There's, this is before cell phones or anything. Uh, you know, I think people had pagers at this point or something, but uh, so I call home to my wife and Hey, how's it going? Yeah. You know, LA's fine and blah, blah, blah. And just catch up. And she goes, she goes, uh, Bruce Allen's office called today. And I'm always kind of perked my interest because, you know, that's where a lot of good jobs come from, right? Yes, of course. Uh, and I know they're not calling me to socialize. Uh, so I go, oh, really? Uh, well, what, did, what did they say? And they said that she goes, well, they were looking for uh, a guitar tech um, for this job. Uh, who, I can't remember the name, but I told them you were in L.A. that you were you're out of town. And I said, well, who was, who was it for? And she goes, I, I can't remember. Um, she's thinking, she goes, uh, uh, Jimmy Page? What? I'm like, All right. I literally, I think I dropped the phone and I, you know, I'm at a, like a pay phone in the lobby of the, the riot house in LA. And I'm like, what? Are you, what are you talking about? And she goes, yeah, there's, he's, they said that he was coming to Vancouver to make a record and they were seeing if you were around. Are you checking your availability? And I said, what time did they call? And they went, oh, they called at about 4.30 or whatever. And I know that office closes at five reception. And, and I thought, you know, I was awake two hours before they opened, full of coffee, and standing at the phone with at 9 a.m. When that, when that office opened up again which I did. And I talked to those guys the next morning and I said, Hey, I don't know what, what they told you, but I'm, Hey, I'm right here. You know? Hey Charles, pull up that picture of Jim and, and, uh, and Jimmy page on the plane. <laughs> I want to see, I want to see that. Right. Yeah, it was right around that time. So, uh, so I call them up and they go, Oh, okay. So you, you are, uh, you are here, uh, uh, you know, around. And I said, yeah, I just kind of got this little, uh, this little uh, project that I'm that I'm doing, um, but I'm totally available. And they and then they said, uh, "Well, uh, you know, Mr. Page is uh, his manager called us, and they're looking for somebody we can recommend. He's in between guitar techs, and uh, we recommend you." And uh, and he goes, "Well, we recommend you." So uh, I'm like, "Well, geez." I'm totally available. And they go, well, okay, we're, I'm going to pass the information on to Jimmy's manager. So I get this call from, you know, the UK of an English chap, you know? Wow. <laughs> you know, I get, you know, and I'm, I'm doing this all in the double secret because I don't want the band to find out that I'm talking to somebody else. Of course. And uh, so I talked to Jimmy's manager. He goes, uh, he goes, okay, you're hired. You know, after we did a little phone interview, and so I basically uh, 
I gave the Screaming Jets their money back, and I and I gave them uh, my buddy's phone number in L.A. Uh, and I said, "Here's a guy that's completely capable for the gig. He's ready to go to work today. Here's your money for the plane ticket and uh, per diem." And I gotta go. Wow! Wow! <laughs> so, so what, what, what was your first? Oh, go go ahead, Scott. Did they understand the reason? Why you were leaving them to go to Jimmy? Yes. I just said, hey, I, you know, I got to go. And they all knew that I had to go, right? Well, in all fairness, that actually gives them bragging rights. Yeah, I mean. Because their, their crew guy just their crew guy just left and he works with Jimmy Page. That actually gives a band cred- credibility they never had before. It's a feather in their cap. And they got a great uh, guy that I set him up with who was there their entire run and worked with them afterwards and uh, was a good fit. So anyway, I immediately got back to Vancouver. I had a couple of days to prepare uh, for the sessions that we were doing at Little Mountain. His gear had been shipped over. And uh, so I needed to get in there and open it all up and get it ready to record. Right. And, uh, now, did you know Carter Sloan? That name rings a bell. Because Carter was Jimmy Page's. He was from Vancouver, I think. His Carter, yeah, he was. He was the. Uh, yeah, he was the, uh, his his assistant slash guitar tech kind of guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but he yeah. passed. But he passed away. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, I remember I, him talking to Carter uh, a couple of times. Uh, I, I think they were pretty good friends at one point. Him and Jimmy. Well, I know Carter, uh, there was a period of time where I was, because Carter got his start with Prism, and I happened to be working with John Hall doing some songwriting, and Carter had phoned John, and he was telling that he was in England, and he was getting Jimmy Page's equipment together, because there was so many amps and guitars that he'd lent out over the years, he didn't re- remember what he owned. Right. So he was trying to get it all back, and, and number it, and serialize. So yeah, so he was working on that for a couple of years, just getting Jimmy Page's uh, stuff back. So I just yeah. wondered if you'd ever met him. So I guess not. I, you know what? I never met him. We spoke on the phone a few times just about, you know, gear and, uh, you know, stuff pertaining to uh, to Jimmy. Um, but I never did meet him. So this is Jimmy doing the album with, uh, uh, what's his name from Whitesnake, isn't it? David Coverdale. David Coverdale, yeah. David Coverdale, yeah. Uh, yeah, Coverdale Page. And so at Little Mountain, so your first gig. So, okay, so now you've been in the studio with Loverboy. Yeah, and Bob way. and Bob Rock, and now you're in the studio with Jimmy Page, the same studio. Yeah, and Mike Fraser. And Mike Fraser, yeah. Mike's Mike's going to be on this show too. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. Hey, yeah, he's yeah, great. Yeah. Um, so yeah, um, so we did a few months up at up in uh, in Vancouver at Little Mountain because, as we all know, that was you know where all the magic touch was happening right about then, and. Uh, and then they started going through some troubles with, you know, politically and financially with the studio and a bit of a takeover. And there was, and the artists thought that that was a distraction. So we picked up and we went to Miami for like <laughs> 10 months to Criteria. You went to Criteria. Now there's a famous studio. Yeah. I've done a couple records in there, but um, we did Criteria for like 10 more months uh, with that record. Uh, and it was, it was fantastic. Um, and the record's gone platinum, and um, it's a great, um, super proud of it. Well, Coverdale's such a great singer, too. Good Lord. Yeah, they did. Uh, the songwriting was good. The vibe was good. And we all had a laugh. It was a, 
really uh, memorable uh, kind of kind of time. But uh, so I worked for him for that year, whatever, and then um, we did a press tour, and his personal assistant had left. So that was my first like big big league personal assistant job. So I flew out to LA with Jimmy and we did the, the, uh, you know, the press tour for, uh, you know, all of his interviews and any videos and everything pertaining to the release of the record. And, uh, and so I, I was his, uh, his guy out there for that and a non technical, uh, supporting role. Yeah, which is which is essentially like a, a more focused road manager job almost. You're, yeah. you're fielding everything and, yeah, you're getting you're getting him around. He's not a guy who can just walk around by himself easily. So, you know, you're kind of a little bit of security. You're, you know, you're getting him to and from places. You're a logistics guy. You're driving him. You're, you know, you're doing anything he needs, you know, picking up the dry cleaning if necessary, whatever it takes. Mm -hmm. um, getting him down to the video shoot. We played, we played the High Voltage Festival in London, England, and he wasn't supposed to be there. And it was weird because we had, we had a trailer backstage and uh, there was a whole bunch of bands. Uh, Joe Elliott was there uh, with his new band and a bunch of people. Just, you know, Emerson, Lake and Palmer had reformed for this festival. It was, so it's quite an exciting backstage area. But I'm sort of getting ready to go on and I look and I look at the gate and I say, that looks like Jimmy Page coming through the gate. And and then I look back at our trailer, and now our trailer, one door says Backman and Turner, and the other door says Jimmy Page. <laughs> they just put this, I guess he'd, he'd given the call saying, I'm coming over, because he was going to produce Joe Elliott's new band. So he'd showed up. So we shared addressing them. Oh, excellent. What I couldn't believe was how tall he was. I always thought it was a short guy. He's like six, at least six feet. Yeah, he might have had some lifts <laughs> or some heels on those boots. I never... Uh... I never thought of him as a tall guy, but... Uh, well, he was tall, slim, and in really good shape when I saw him. I was really surprised at how good he looked. Yeah, he's a great guy. Uh, very considerate, epitome of an English gentleman, uh, you know. And an interesting musician because, you know, incidentally, he happens to be a guitarist. But I really think that he could have been in anything because his musical ability is his umbrella of oversight. He just sees the whole puzzle and how it fits together and is his his oversight is as good as anything that he does um and i think well, that's what separates him from the pack well his producing was so great i mean that the that that led zeppelin stuff was groundbreaking at the time it still yeah. sounds amazing and it still stands up yeah it was absolutely yeah. uh, um but uh wow so jimmy page so how long did that last we did about a year in the studio with him, and then uh, and then the, we went out to L.A. and did the, the, the press uh, tour for the record release. And then there was going to be a little bit of a, um, a quiet time before the, the uh, live shows. And they had signed an agreement with Geffen to do X amount of live shows, and it wasn't a whole lot of live shows. Uh, and they're going to go to Japan and do a handful of shows. And it wasn't going to be much. Um, so I get back to Vancouver. And through the grapevine, I hear Aerosmith is coming to Little Mountain to record. So I grab, I grab the pump record and I look on the back because <laughs> there's no internet yet. 
and it says Collins Management, Cambridge, Massachusetts. And so I find their number and I call Collins Management in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I said, hey, now I'm all confident. Yeah. <laughs> I ain't scared of you. <laughs> so I call them up and I said, hey, uh, Jim Service here. I, uh, I live in Vancouver and uh, rumors got it. You guys are coming to town. And uh, I just want to let you know I'm uh, available for, you know, any kind of guitar tech or liaise to the city or, you know, uh, whatever you guys need, you know, anything. Um, I'd be happy to assist you if you need any uh, help in that department. And it was just some secretary at the management office, right? But she goes, okay, and she wrote my shit down. And um, I didn't think much of it, but I had to take a stab, right? Right. Um, I'm, I'm going to take a stab. What's the worst thing that can happen? Nothing. So I, I took a stab, and a couple of weeks went by, and I'm sitting at home in, uh, in Burnaby, where I used to live, by Burnaby Mountain, and uh, the phone rings. And, uh, and my wife picked it up. And then she goes, it's for you, you know, and I, I, I go and grab the phone and it's Joe Perry. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so I'm like, you know, he's like, hey, you know, I, you know, office, uh, you know, gave me your number and said you're going to be around or whatever. You know? And I'm like, I'm like, yeah. So we start bullshitting and he's asking about the Jimmy record went and, you know, and he obviously he's a fan of Jimmy's, a huge influence right. on him. And uh, we so we bullshit for like ten minutes, and he goes, "Well, if you want you want a job, I'm coming to Vancouver, um, and uh, I need somebody temporarily." They always say temporarily in case you're a flake. Right. And, uh, so he hired me. He goes, "Call my office. We'll call you tomorrow, and work out the details." So they called me, and. I got the damn job that I kept for 18 years. Wow. Uh, Scott, wow. Scott has a question for you. Yeah. So, so GM, did you find, I guess, this big transition now when you went to Jimmy, is that the big door opener for you? Like give you the real street cred to take it to that, the high that level? Is, that street cred is still lasting today. Yeah. Um, I believe uh, it's just that there's only a handful of guys ever to exist that have that kind of cred. Um, and, uh, and I got lucky to, to, uh, to be able to work with a guy and, and have an association with them. And we're still friends. I also did the, the Black Crows uh, Jimmy Page tour. Um, so we were able to work together again later um, when I was with the Crows. And, uh, and we bump into each other here and there in an award show or a Hall of Fame ceremony or something and he's it's still warm and friendly and uh yeah that was you know but some of those other smaller gigs like the brian adams gig when i got it was kind of uh in my mind kind of opened up maybe took off some of the chains that i had self-imposed uh on, on myself well, yeah, because so much was going through the Bruce Allen office, like you were saying, and Jody Perpick, of course, is he's gonna he was helping you, and he was he was making his way through the ranks, giving you good word, you know, yeah. and then Bruce Bruce is of course now Bruce is managing Bob Rock. Bob Rock is in the studio with these guys, yeah. so I got a good rapport with Rock, and, and later Fairburn, um, 
but yeah, um, it was, uh, yeah, it all worked out pretty good. <laughs> hey, thanks for joining us. Check out our many other podcasts featuring vignettes and full episodes from a growing list of recording artists and other music insiders. And please like, share, and subscribe to our channel so we can bring you more great content from this and many other shows we're now producing. Available both on podcast and video on demand.